T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently came out with rather alarming information when it comes to diseases transmitted by mosquitoes and ticks. And our go-to person for such topics is Dr. Ted Andriotis, Director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Good morning to you, sir. Uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be back with you again. At least nine diseases newly discovered or introduced into the United States. What are we watching here in Connecticut? Well, the primary uh, mosquito-borne diseases that we're concerned with here in Connecticut are West Nile virus, uh, which appeared back in 1999, and uh, Eastern equine encephalitis, which is very rare but does occasionally occur uh, usually in the eastern corner of the state. With regard to ticks, uh, we really have our hands full. Um, some people have described us as the Lyme disease capital of the world. Uh, Lyme disease is certainly a concern. But in addition to Lyme disease, we have a number of other uh, disease-causing pathogens that are carried by ticks here in the, in the region, including Babesia, which is like a malarial parasite, uh, anaplasma, which causes um, sickness as well. And we have this newly emerging virus called Powassan, uh, that we're just beginning to learn a little bit about. We had our first human case last year, and that, that virus we're watching very, very closely. So uh, these are the uh, uh, pathogenic organisms that cause disease that we're monitoring very closely here in the state of Connecticut. It was a busy year last year for ticks, thanks to the, the mild winter. How is it so far this year? They're showing up already, aren't they? Oh, yes. Uh, people have been bringing them in, and we're getting many submissions uh, by the public. Um, as I think you know, we do offer uh, free tick testing service for our citizens of the state of Connecticut. We ask that citizens uh, bring their uh, ticks either directly to us or submit them through their health department. Annually, we test uh, anywhere between three to 5,000. Last year, uh, because we had such a mild February, the ticks were very active and people were picking them up. Uh, this year has been fairly typical, uh, but uh, we're getting ticks that are being brought in by uh, people on a regular basis. Right now, we're seeing the adult stages of the uh, tick that causes Lyme disease, Exodia scapularis. But in a few weeks, we're going to start seeing the small nymphs. And, th and that's a major concern because they're only about the size of a pinhead. And uh, these uh, ticks are notorious uh, for being infected. And uh, they often go unnoticed. Uh, so it's very, very important. Uh, I tell people all the time, just assume that if you're going out into the woods, going on hiking trails, that you're going to pick up ticks. And it's really important that uh, you use repellents and pay close attention, and especially when you come back from being outdoors. You want to check yourself very, very closely. 
And in most cases, it means, you know, taking off your clothes and looking, you know, underneath your armpits, behind your neck, uh, little cracks and crevices in your body, because that's where they will quickly attach. That's especially important for children, isn't it? Absolutely. And oftentimes, you know, we'll have parents come in with uh, children who have had a tick uh, bite, uh, you know, around their scalp line, behind their neck or, or behind their ear, and they won't even notice it. Um, but yeah, parents should be checking their children very closely. Most people, a lot of people will pick them up in and around the homes in the areas of greatest concern where you have that uh, border between a manicured lawn and then you get into the wood shrub area. So you anywhere that you have low-lying vegetation, especially if it's dense with brush, uh, tall grasses, these are areas where you're going to pick up ticks. If you're on a hiking trail, you want to stay in the cleared area. Once you venture out, into the edge, you're going to pick up the ticks. They're all there. When you talk about repellent, what should you look for in a product? Well, we know that uh, repellents that contain DEET, anywhere up to about 30%, seem to be effective. Picaridin is also effective as well. However, we have found that the uh, um, pesticide um, pyrethroid um, that is sold and can only be applied to clothing really does offer better protection. But you cannot apply this product to your skin. You can only apply it to your clothes. So when it's cool and you, you're wearing long pants, you know, we advise you to tuck them into your socks, wear light-colored clothing so you can see the ticks, and then spray your clothing um, with this Permanon product that, that works quite well. If you've got bare skin, then minimally you should be using DEET or Picaridin as a repellent, um, and that should provide you with some protection. But once again, nothing is foolproof. You need to check yourself very closely when you return back home. We've been dealing with Lyme disease for decades in Connecticut, but it still seems like it's kind of a mystery illness when humans contract it. Are there any misconceptions or myths out there that you, you hear and say, gee, that's not right, I wish I could, could correct the record on that? Well, there is certainly some controversy concerning uh, long-term Lyme disease, um, and there are many folks who have been treated with antibiotics uh, that do uh, still have symptoms. And I'm not a physician, and I can't answer that question, but what I've been told by most physicians is that once you've been treated with the antibiotics and you've cleared your system of the infectious spirochete, which is a bacterium causing the disease, you should be uh, disease-free. Um, in the case of, of Lyme disease, if you catch it quick enough and you're treated with an antibiotic, and the antibiotic of choice is typically doxycycline, uh, usually taken for about a week, this will usually cure it up um, without any uh, further complications. Uh, however, there are issues with folks who don't get treated immediately, and they do seem to have some complications uh, going down the line. I should also mention, too, that in order for Lyme disease to be transmitted from an infected tick, that tick needs to feed for at least one to two days. So if you can remove that tick within a relatively short period of time, even if the tick's infected, the likelihood that you're going to become infected is greatly reduced. So that's real important. When you talk about your, your tick testing program, which the tick should be submitted through the local health department, it's not just a tick that you find crawling on you. It, it has to have been engorged, right? Yes. We, we do limit our testing to engorged ticks because if the tick hasn't been fed, then there's no major concern. We do ask that folks will submit them through their local health departments or districts. However, we will not turn anybody away if they show up at the door. And incidentally, you know, we 
routinely test anywhere between three to 5,000 ticks a year that are brought in by the public, and it's a free service to the citizens of Connecticut. And we find that in the case of Lyme disease, we find that over a third of the ticks that we test are infected with that spirochete that causes Lyme disease, and over 50% of the ticks that we test are infected of one of three organisms that we're now screening for. So that's a very, very high percentage. You mentioned Powassan earlier, which is uh, more concerning in terms of what it can lead to. The infection rates in ticks is much lower, thankfully, when it comes to that. Right. We don't know a whole lot yet about Powassan virus, but it does appear to be an emerging virus here in the state of Connecticut and throughout the Northeast. And the reason I feel certain about that is that during the early years when we were searching for the causal organism that caused Lyme disease, there was a lot of effort, especially by the researchers at Yale, focusing on viruses, and they never found it. And my feeling is that if Powassan virus was present in the tick population with all the screening and everything that they did, they would have found it. But now it's beginning to show up. Fortunately, as you indicated in our preliminary work right now, we're finding it a very, very low percentage, maybe about 2 to 4% of the ticks. But we're hoping, we just uh, uh, wrote up a proposal to get some additional funding from the Centers for Disease Control to conduct an active surveillance program for tick-borne viruses. And so we'll be, if we get this funding, we'll be surveying ticks throughout the state of Connecticut to get a better idea of just how widely distributed this virus is and what the prevalence of infection is in the ticks. And the reason this is important is because with Powassan virus, unlike Lyme disease or Babesia, there's no treatment. We don't have any antiviral. Number two, these ticks will transmit the virus within a matter of minutes of feeding. So the you know situation like with Lyme, if you can remove it before it's had an opportunity to feed for two days, you're not going to get infected. That's not true with Powassan. And thirdly, with Powassan, as this virus uh, attacks the central nervous system, can cause encephalitis, and has been the cause of fatalities in the region. In Massachusetts, in Massachusetts and in, New, in, in the Hudson Valley area of New York. So there's a concern there with that particular virus. Is there any theory on the origins of Powassan? Uh, it was originally described from a young boy in Powassan, Ontario, Canada, back, I think, in 1959. So it's been noted for quite some time, um, but it does appear to be emerging in the Northeast region, and I don't have an explanation for that. You mentioned earlier that Connecticut has been described as ground zero for Lyme disease. Of course, it's named after a town in Connecticut. How far has it gone to other areas of the country? Lyme disease does appear to be expanding. Uh, there is a uh, focal area that's up in the upper Midwest area, Michigan, Wisconsin, which has a very similar ecological setting to us. And it's expanding here in the Northeast as well, extending up into northern New England, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont as well. So it's it's pretty well distributed through our area, but we're certainly right in the thick of it. Talk about the ticks that carry this. It's mainly, actually, it's solely the Ixodes scapularis, which is commonly called uh, the deer tick. It's also known as the black-legged tick. And uh, this tick, uh, at one time, was really not common in the area. And it's, it, it is very, very abundant. Its creased abundance is apparently due to the increase in the deer herd. The adults feed on white-tailed deer. 
And as we have moved from an agricultural community of society where most of the land was cleared, we've had reforestation, it's created ideal habitat for the deer, and the deer herd has expanded exponentially. And that's one of the major reasons. The larval stage of the tick and the source of the uh, bacterium that causes the disease are white-footed mice. And we have great habitat for that, all these uh, low-lying vegetation uh, where we have a lot of these um, stone walls throughout wooded areas create great harborage uh, for the mice. Uh, we did some work um, that we just published uh, with our wildlife biology group, and we showed that uh, Japanese uh, barberry uh, stands, which is an invasive plant, um, creates wonderful harborage for the mice that serve as the source of the Lyme disease spirochete and the, the larval ticks. And you find high prevalence rates in these areas. And so uh, this Japanese barberry uh, that's, that is an invasive plant has created another problem and is also um, involved in increasing the prevalence of these ticks and Lyme disease as well. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dr. Ted Andreatis. He is the director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Switching gears from ticks to mosquitoes, the state's annual mosquito monitoring program is poised to get underway. Uh, tell us, when does that start and how many uh, areas will be you'll be monitoring? Uh, we'll begin our program on June 4th. Uh, we will be trapping mosquitoes and testing them for viruses at 91 different locations throughout the state. Uh, this is a long-standing program that we've had in place for about 20 years now. It's a very, very comprehensive and effective program. We're, we're able to monitor um, Lyme, uh, West Nile virus as well as Eastern equine encephalitis in these mosquitoes throughout the state. Uh, typically, we will trap and test over 200,000 mosquitoes uh, throughout the course of the season. We trap uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, they're identified in our laboratories in New Haven, and then they're screened for infection in our biosafety level three containment facility, which we have on our campus in New Haven. And then we report the results directly to the Department of Public Health and disseminate them to the public. When you think about mosquitoes in Connecticut and diseases they carry, you think about eastern equine encephalitis and West Nile. Are there others? Uh, those are the two principal ones. There are other disease-causing organisms. There's a virus called Jamestown Canyon virus uh, that does seem to be emerging, uh, re-emerging uh, in other parts of the United States, principally up in the upper Midwest. I was just talking to some researchers out there, and last year they had 43 human cases, which was quite remarkable. We find this virus all the time. It occurs very early in the season, generally in June, and sort of peters out as you get through July. And this virus causes a, a mild flu-like symptoms. So in, in many cases, it's going to go underreported. But we have had instances of uh, folks uh, who have been hospitalized with this, but in almost every case that I'm aware of, they have recovered and no fatalities have been associated with it, but does cause a mild flu-like disease. So when you're out uh, during the early parts of the summer, even though we haven't detected West Nile virus, you still want to protect yourself from mosquitoes. Uh, with regard to West Nile virus, uh, since we've been monitoring this virus, uh, we have had um, 134 human cases that have been reported. 
uh, and unfortunately, we have had uh, three fatalities. Those three fatalities have all been in uh, folks over 80 years of age. And just a reminder, I mean, West Nile virus um, uh, does cause, uh, you know, um, flu-like symptoms, fever, headache, nausea, vomiting. But it's our middle-aged and elderly population that's at greatest risk for developing severe disease, uh, which can result uh, in encephalitis. Uh, and in some cases, rare cases, can actually be fatal. When it comes to West Nile, I remember almost two decades ago now, birds were showing up dead with the virus. Is that something that still happens? Uh, birds serve as a major source of the virus uh, because the mosquitoes that carry this virus principally feed on birds. And some work that we did early on here in Connecticut, we identified the American robin, which happens to be our state bird, as the principal source of the virus for these mosquitoes. Um, so yes, they do feed on them, and we do get some mortality, but we're not seeing the massive die-off in crows uh, that we originally saw when the virus was first introduced. Um, we're not quite sure, but we think there's probably some herd immunity that's occurred within the population of crows, and that's not why we see so much mortality. But we do get occasional reports of crows dying as well. And how about Triple E? Triple E is very unpredictable. Uh, but it's something that we monitor very, very closely. Uh, the focal area for eastern equine encephalitis is typically in the um, southeast corner of the state. And uh, this is where we historically have had activity. We've had uh, horse cases. And uh, I think back in 2013, unfortunately, we had our first human confirmed case. And unfortunately, the gentleman died. Uh, so this is a very, very serious disease, but it's relatively rare, uh, and we don't pick it up every year. Usually, if we have a very wet spring and summer uh, that results in flooding of a lot of these hardwood red maple swamps where the virus occurs, uh, then we'll see some activity. But it's hard to predict from one year to the next, but we do monitor it very closely. If we find this virus early in the season, beginning in July, then we get concerned. Uh, another area is in southeastern Massachusetts, where they historically uh, see a, a moderate number of cases uh, over the years. And so we also pay close attention to what's going on in our neighboring states as well. Um, on the other end, uh, with regard to West Nile virus, the focal areas are there are really in lower Fairfield and New Haven counties in the urban areas because the mosquito that carries it is an urban species. And it's along that I-95 corridor that extends from Greenwich up to New Haven and then up 91 into the greater Hartford area. Those are the areas of greatest concern where we get most of the infected mosquitoes and that's where we've had the large majority of human cases. Repellent is also key in fighting off mosquitoes, isn't it? Yes, and uh, the mosquitoes that carry West Nile virus, most of these mosquitoes do feed during uh, dusk and dawn and during the early evening hours. So that's when you're going to be at most risk uh, for be getting bitten by an infected mosquito. And the high-risk areas generally, uh, high-risk times generally extend from about um, early to mid-August through the end of September. Uh, that's when the infection rate is the highest in the mosquitoes, and that's when you have the greatest likelihood of contracting the disease. Now, when we report that we have found infected mosquitoes in your community, it's really important uh, to take some precautions because it's the real deal. When we find it in mosquitoes, we know it's circulating, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. So that's when the public really needs to 
be vigilant, protect yourself from mosquitoes, eliminate standing water around the home, uh, don't let bird baths get stagnant, make sure your pools are chlorinated, uh, empty any type of containers that you have. And if you're going to be out, especially during early evening hours when these mosquitoes are biting, you want to use a repellent. You talked about the, the peak time for mosquitoes. It seems to skew maybe a little earlier for ticks? Yes. Yeah, I mean, the tick season really begins uh, as soon as it begins to warm up. Uh, and we have people that will pick ticks up in, in April and in May uh, throughout the summer and right into the fall, especially into October and November. And then if you have a mild winter, you can even pick them up in February. So <laughs> there's very little time that you're not at risk for picking up ticks except for the, for the middle of the winter. Um, but with the case of mosquitoes, the mosquito season generally runs uh, from June until the end of October. The Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station also provides many other services, including the Connecticut Valley Laboratory, which is in Windsor. And there's a lot of crop experimentation going on there. Also a good place to get your soil tested to see you know, what you need to do to it to make things grow in it. Yes, at the, at the Valley Lab, uh, which has existed since the 1920s, um, we also offer... Uh, soil testing there, so folks can bring their soil tests there as well. But a, a majority of the work that's done there is working on agricultural crops. And one of the new initiatives that we've had uh, is uh, working with the craft beer industry in evaluating new hop cultivars to determine which ones grow best here in Connecticut. As uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, the craft beer industry really has exploded throughout the country uh, and here in Connecticut as well. And what we have uh, been doing uh, with some grant money that we have received from the Department of Agriculture is to evaluate different cultivars of hops to determine which ones grow best in the Connecticut climate. We're also evaluating various trellis systems. The way hops grow is they can grow 20, 30 feet up in the air uh, in these large trellises. And uh, I just learned uh, last year that we have wild hops uh, here in Connecticut um, that have, have survived for centuries. And uh, one of our researchers, Dr. James Lamondia, is looking at these wild hops uh, because certainly they've got a lot of the characteristics that have allowed them to flourish here in the state. And we're looking to see if we can utilize these natural hops that are native to Connecticut and grow them commercially uh, for the craft beer industry because there is a lot of interest in locally grown uh, hops for Connecticut beer uh, and uh, just like with the wine industry with Connecticut grown uh, wine. So we're really moving in that end and we're kind of staying on the front and working closely uh, with these craft breweries in the state. So the brewers came to the state, or the state came to the brewers. I mean, it's interesting how well, this thing got a combination. Up the we we uh, got started on this several years ago, and uh, we had uh, demonstrations on you know growing hops and how to cultivate them. And a lot of growers uh, were looking to diversify some of their crops, uh, became interested, and have worked closely with Jim Lamondia as he's done his, his research. That's what we do. Uh, one of the primary functions of the experiment station is not just in public health and monitoring uh, vector-borne diseases, but uh, working in agriculture to develop new cultivars, uh, different plant types. We work very closely with the nursery industry here in the Connecticut as well uh, to try to develop better products for Connecticut. 
So the, the crop may be new, but the, the work is something that you've been doing for generations. We've been doing it since uh, our, uh, we first started back in 1875. We were the uh, oldest agricultural experiment station in the country. Uh, you may be interested in noting our original charge back in 1875 was to evaluate fertilizers. Uh, we had a uh, apparently a fair number of unscrupulous uh, folks who were producing fertilizer that didn't contain the nutrients that they said were in there, and one of our first responsibilities at the station back in 1875 was to evaluate fertilizers uh, so that uh, crops could be grown um, uh, more productively in the state. And on our last minute or so, because we have dealt with Lyme and other diseases for so long, we are in a better position to to monitor and respond uh, than maybe some of our neighbors. We really are. Our mosquito surveillance program is second to none. And I think uh, citizens uh, can take some comfort in knowing that we're on top of this. We're monitoring uh, mosquito-borne diseases very closely, and there are no surprises. Uh, Our program is very comprehensive. We can find these viruses in mosquitoes in the right locations before they represent a serious threat to the public. Uh, So once again, as I indicated, when we report that we found it in your community, it's important to take notice. With regard to ticks, we have programs to evaluate tick control. We're monitoring these tick-borne diseases. So I think we're doing a pretty good job at it uh, to provide this service uh, for citizens of the state. Ted Andriotis, director of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.